So about four years ago, I had the privilege of being in Ethiopia, and I was in this city called Asela. And Asela is a city where uh, many, many uh, runners, world-famous runners, have come out of this city because the, uh, the elevation is so high above sea level that you just get accustomed to running and running and running with very little oxygen. And then when those runners from Asela come down to where the rest of us live, uh, it's like they're on NOS all the time. And they're just incredible runners. When I was in this, um, in this uh, city, I traveled to some of the outskirts, to some of the uh, smaller, more rural areas where uh, folks and families still, uh, they live in huts with thatched roofs and these, uh, the type of typical uh, scene that you would imagine when you imagine rural uh, some of the rural areas of Africa. So I was in some of those regions, and I had some of the best coffee of my life. They would uh, go right over to the, to the plant and pluck it right off the plant and then begin to roast it. So when they, when they offered you a coffee, you didn't drink the coffee till, you know quite a bit later, but it was, it was incredible. And they have this uh, interesting cultural practice there because when you're making coffee, you can hear them roasting the beans, you can hear them they're roasting the beans, and then you can smell the roasting of the beans. So in those rural areas, when somebody's making coffee, that's a communal invitation to come and have hospitality. So if you hear the sound, you're welcome to go. That's the way that the communities work. So you'll hear and, and folks will just start gathering. So what they do is they have a way of letting you know when you're welcome and a way of letting you know when you're not welcome. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece of etiquette because it eliminates all sorts of awkward conversations like, ah, oh, look at the time. And you don't have to do any of that. What they do is, you're making the coffee and all of a sudden here come the neighbors. Some of the neighbors, you can imagine, you probably would be more than welcome to have and others not so welcome. So here come the neighbors and they hear the coffee. And so what they do is they give you a cup and they hand everybody a cup. And um, if you look down in your cup and the cup is full, you're welcome to stay. If you look down in the cup and the cup is half full, that means enjoy your coffee, but then you need to go. And that could mean a variety of things. It might mean the family has something they need to do and they don't have time. So it's not necessarily that you as an individual are not welcome in their home. It just means you're not welcome to stay. And that could mean a, a variety of things. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's, I've always thought, how can we import that back to Canada? But anyways, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's beautiful. Who is welcome and who is not welcome? Our text today is Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is a psalm where David asks a very important question. It's a, a very provoking question. And the question is, who does God welcome? Psalm chapter 15, starting in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. This is God's word. It's a provoking passage. Who does God welcome? In verse 1, that's really the question. Because in verse 1, David says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Kids, if you look down in your notes, the word sojourn in Hebrew is uh, 
the word gur, which means it's describing a person that has uh, no original rights to stay, but they're welcome to stay. That's a sojourner. You don't own this home. You're not, you don't have any right to be here, but yet you're invited and welcomed to stay. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it's to stay indefinitely. And so there are still some cultures today uh, that practice this idea that a family or friend or someone off the street who's injured, you know, uh, and destitute can come and you will give them hospitality and they can stay indefinitely. That still remains in some cultures. I was uh, watching an interview with a young woman. Her name is uh, Malala Yousafzai, and she is a Pakistani activist for the education of women. She's the youngest uh, winner of the Nobel uh, Peace Prize. And she's brilliant, this young woman. And David Letterman was interviewing her, and she was talking about this practice of sojourners being welcomed in to stay indefinitely. And David Letterman was blown away by this, and he said... So you mean I could go to, to, uh, your, to the city where your family is and I could just go into your home and I could stay there as long as I want and it would be okay? And she said, well, it might not be okay, but we would never tell you. you know, like, you'd be allowed to stay. And he was just blown away by this. And, but this is uh, still practiced in some cultures. And so David calls all of us sojourners. He basically says all of humanity... The, the, the quote-unquote good people, the quote-unquote bad people. It doesn't matter who you are or where you fall on the sliding scale of a cultural conversation around morality. We're all sojourners, right? None of us have a right to God. That's how David starts the song. If we don't have a right to your welcome, then who gets the full cup? Who gets the welcome? Who is that person? And David starts to work this out. He starts to work out the implications. He's processing as he's writing this lyric. And he reasons this. And kids, you look down your notes, you'll find this. If God is perfectly loving and perfectly pure and perfectly holy, then it stands to reason that the only people that are welcome in his presence are perfectly pure and perfectly loving and perfectly holy. And so he starts to walk out the implications of what that, what that standard looks like. And, he, and you start to see it as you unpack the verses. In verse 2, it says that a person who's blameless and does what's right and speaks truth in their heart. The heart is not the organ that pumps the blood. In the Hebrew, the heart is the labab, which means it's the, the heart is the place where the meditation of the mind and the appetite of the soul is. So, when da- so what David's saying is, okay, what's the kind of person who gets God's welcome? Well, I guess it's the kind of person who the meditation of their mind is truth, the appetite of their soul is truth, they're always loving the right things. Well, oh my goodness, who is that? Right? The, there's a prophet, Jeremiah, in Israel's history, and he wrote in chapter 7, verse 9 of his work, he said, the heart is deceitful above all things, it's beyond cure, who can know it? Oh my goodness, okay. So the prophet of God says all of our hearts have the ability to deceive us. David is now contemplating who gets the welcome of God. It's the person with the pure heart. The problem is all of us sojourners who have no right to God have impure hearts. Do you see how all of a sudden the psalm, it starts, it starts going downhill very quickly? If we're honest with our own humanity, this doesn't look good. And so... Um, David is kind of working out this, what this all means. There was a 16th century theologian named Thomas Cramner. His work was, some of his work anyways, was, was summarized by a, a man named Dr. Ashley Null 
and said this, that the, what the heart wants, the soul goes after and the mind justifies. And that's kind of the dilemma of the, the sinful condition of, of, of our humanity, is that what our hearts really want, our soul goes after and our mind has a way of justifying it. So David's working out the implications. The one getting the welcome of God, the one who gets the full cup of God, must be the one who's got this purity in the meditation of their mind and in the desires and the appetites, because your heart is like a stomach of your heart, of what you love. And uh, so this doesn't go well. I, I mean, we think about how easy it is for you to justify things that you've done. If you look back on your past, sometimes it's hard in the moment because we're justifying things in the moment. You know, but if you look back on your past, you can look back and go, wow, it's amazing how I got there, how I justified that. You know, because I, you look back on it, you go, I had a real appetite for it. You know, I have a real appetite for, for uh, all kinds of things. I, I, I've shared with you guys, and I have this appetite for Lay's chips. I eat them like they're going into a wood chipper. And it's so easy for me to justify eating a bag that says family pack on it. I shouldn't do that, but it's easy to justify. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to walk tomorrow. I have to get out of my bed and i got to walk and brush my teeth. So there's that exercise happening in my life. It's easy to justify. I also justify being right and being defensive. Very, I, I justify it. Whether it's Susan or my kids, could be one of you. Where with the moment that I'm confronted and my, and my, my fragile, busy, bruised ego feels like it's threatened, it's very easy for me in that moment to maybe respond in a way that isn't very loving, but justify it, right? Well, I'm the dad, you're the kid, you're, you know, figure out how this works, right? You respect me and life is good. It's easy for me to justify, well, yeah, but, you're, but the way that you responded to your children, or for me with Susan, or with one of you. We, what, what, what the mind justifies is, is astounding. And so David is working this out, and he's saying, the one who gets the welcome of God, the one who gets the full cup of God, has to be someone whose mind isn't busy justifying evil things. Because their mind is meditating on truthful things, and their heart is loving truthful things. And we look at that, and we go, oh boy, this isn't going anyplace good, because none of us get the cup of God. <laughs> that says, you're welcome to stay indefinitely. And so, in verse 3, goes on and talks about slander. It's an interesting word. In the Hebrew uh, culture, they would use, the, it's the word ragal in the Hebrew. And uh, they would talk about somebody slandering that we think of it as backbiting, which it is, and gossiping, which it is. But there's another use for it in the Hebrew, and they would call a spy a slanderer. Someone who pretends they're with you. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Oh, yeah. And then they're gone, and then they're reporting everything back to incriminate you. Right? And so we've experienced this vocationally and work with people who slander. Oh, yeah, I'm with you. You're with me in the meeting, and then the meeting's over, and then there's the meeting after the meeting that you didn't get invited to. You know, that, that kind of thing. Corporately, relationally, with friends. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm totally your friend. And then you hear things later, and you're like, wow, this is hard. We know what this is like. He goes on, and David's like, it can't be someone who's doing these things. Verse 4 says that the person who's welcomed with God swears to his own hurt and does not change. If you swear to your own hurt, that's a serious level of integrity. That means even when the pressure gets, pressure gets put on, you're like, no, I, this is my conviction. It's an incredible level of integrity. The person welcomed by, with God has this transparency. So we get this and we see, boy, the standard in this psalm is impossibly high. The integrity, the love, the honesty, the transparency, the hatred of evil, and the love for 
what is good, the commitment to justice, this perfect upward love of God and outward-faced love for others. We look at this passage carefully. We look at these verses that David says, who will get the welcome of God? Who gets to dwell in his tent? And it doesn't look like any of us are getting the cup. Maybe I'm saying this, and this is offensive to you, because you're thinking, listen, I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm very sanctified. Well, good. (laughs) However, let me gently and directly provoke you to consider that the standard here is not, you know, on the sliding scale of, of improvement. Or maybe you're offended because you're thinking, well, I'm not sure where my faith in God stands. I'm not even sure I believe in God. And here you are telling me that God's standard is perfection. And I think God should just accept my best shot at it because that would be more loving. Well, there's a problem with that. It wouldn't be God just accepting your best shot at it wouldn't be good news because then that would mean that there was a sliding scale on God's standard of what he would accept. And if there was a sliding scale on what God's standard of what he would accept, how would you ever know if you met it? None of us would be able to leave church today with peace in our hearts because it would be like, where do I stand? Will I get the welcome of God? Where do I line up with, with Psalm 15? But God's standards aren't low. And it's interesting that we, we as a culture, put that on God. Well, God shouldn't be a God of perfection. The one who spun the cosmos into existence and told the oceans where to stop and caused everything on planet Earth to uh, spin at such a rate that we don't spin off into the stratosphere. And we've got these 15 constants in science keeping everything moving. There is, to use the words of Stephen Hawking, what is breathing fire into the equations that make the universe work? And God, the one who breathed the fire into the equations, causing the universe to work. I mean, if, if that God doesn't have a perfect standard and we say, well, it should be low, that's a, that's a weird way to think about the creator of the universe. Because think about how you relate to your own standards. Are you proud of having low standards? Do you talk about that, brag about it, say, you know what, my standards aren't very high. You know, I'll accept the absolute bare minimum in all areas of life because I'm a, that doesn't make you a loving person. How does having low standards make you a loving person? Let's just think this out logically for a moment. You go to a hotel and you go to the room and there's a hair in the bed. You will have a reaction to that, I'm sure. And your reaction will not be, that's fine. Me and this hair can coexist here. There is no dilemma. That will not be your reaction to the hair in the bed. You go out, for, uh, you go out to a restaurant with friends. You're sitting down, you're ordering your meal. Yeah! You're so excited because nothing makes, nothing's greater than friends and food. You just love it. Yes! They bring you your drink. You look at the glass. There's a lipstick smudge on it. You'll have a reaction to that. And your reaction to that won't be, I'm sure they were a very hygienic person. You know, that's not what you're going to do. This is not going to be your reaction. December 31st, you're hosting a New Year's party. It's snowing outside. Your friends all show up at the door. They come in. Their boots are covered in slush and road salt and dirt and sludge as they meandered the way up the walkway to your door. You're not, you're not going to say... Welcome. Just come on in. Leave the boots on. Leave them on. It's fine. You won't won't have that reaction. You have standards. You're going to say, friends, take those boots off your feet for the hallway in which you stand is holy ground. You're not going to let them come in. 
And you're a human, you're made of dirt, and you have standards. So how much more then is it just, I'm just logically reasoning out that the God of the cosmos would have a perfect standard? That just stands up to reason in my mind. And it stands up to reason in, I mean, I'm not saying my mind like my opinion. I'm saying I'm looking at Psalm 15, and David has laid out here for us an impossibly high standard of who God will welcome, of which sojourner that has no right to be there gets to stay there indefinitely. It's a powerful, radical picture. The good news of the gospel is this. The God who requires this perfection from you came in Jesus Christ, gave and provided this perfection for you. The faithful man of Psalm 15 is Jesus Christ. The one who opens up all the Psalms is Jesus Christ. The only one who meets the criteria of Psalm 15 and it is meant to be kept is Jesus Christ. And through grace and faith alone, church, you are united to Jesus Christ. Which means Jesus Christ has earned the welcome. And by grace, Jesus Christ has given you the welcome. He's earned this. David is asking, who is the one who has no rights, who can stay indefinitely forever? And Jesus Christ came, and he checked all the boxes, and he fulfilled God's law, and he gives us the welcome. And so, if you trust in Jesus Christ, this psalm no longer accuses you. It is now a faithful guide for you. Kids, if you look in your notes, you're going to find this. This psalm is a faithful guide for you because this psalm, as you go through that, as you look through those characteristics of the person that gets that welcome, it's describing the new you. It's describing because you're united to Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you. That that has implications of him doing things in you. And this Psalm 15 is now no longer a crushing burden that accuses you. It's a guide for you, for the new you. Because united to Christ by grace, we desire to be imitators of Christ by grace. And so, in summary, the psalm says, you know, the one that does what God says is right and love what God says is right and, and says what God says is right is welcomed by God. And so, you and I, we endeavor to love what is right, and do what is right, and speak what is right. And then we turn to our children, and we bring them here on Sundays, and we gather around the gospel. And then at home, around your dinner table, or wherever you do it, you gather around the gospel, because not only do we want to love what is right, and do what is right, and speak what is right, we want our children to love what is right, do what is right, speak what is right. But we don't do that from a chronic fear that you're, we're going to get handed a half a cup. Our obedience to God isn't from a chronic fear that we're, our failure to keep God's word means we lose God's grace. We do this now. Psalm 15 faithfully guides us now. It guides our parenting. It guides the way we relate in our marriages. It gu- if you're a single person, it guides the joy in which you enjoy your singleness and, 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 live, a, uh, and live loving God in his ways and, and loving your life under God's Lord, under the lordship of Christ without participating in a culture conversation that says the greatest and best thing ever is to, be, is to be married. You're free from all of that and you're enjoying it. All of us now are being faithfully guided as individuals by God's grace. 
uh, are, by Psalm 15, we're being guided by it, and we're training our children to be guided by it, not from a fear that we lose his grace, but compelled, compelled by our new nature. Compelled now because the grace has implications. We're compelled because we want to be imitators of our Lord of grace. So as we look back on the psalm through the lens of the gospel, we find that this this encourages us. Verse 2 says that, you know, we're supposed to be blameless, do what's right, speak truth in our heart. Well, if the meditation of our mind and the appetite of our soul um, is what our heart is, then the good news of the gospel means this. The Holy Spirit who is in you is renewing your loves. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. What is his work? What is God doing in you? The, the Word of God tells us what the Spirit is doing in you. It says in Galatians 5, the Spirit is doing nine things in you. Creating love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can't self-manufacture those things. You can't... It, those things... At working all together are the work of the Spirit. And so now, because that's what the Spirit is doing in you, Psalm 15 is now faithful guide for you. You now read it and you say, Oh God. And as you go to prayer and you begin to see the ways in which you are none of these things, those dark and unevangelized parts of your heart where you and I look in the mirror and go, I'm nothing like that. There's no condemnation in that. Now we go to God in prayer. We say, oh God, I see this. I see it in my own heart. I hate that it's there. Would you by your spirit do a work? Do a work Because Christ has given me this full cup of welcome. And I want to enjoy the welcome by living to your, living to your glory, which is true freedom and true, liber- and, uh, true liberation. Right? Christ was blameless. That's what Psalm 15 says. You have to be blameless. Christ was blameless. United to him, you're declared blameless. So now, since you're already declared blameless, the Spirit is doing an increasing work so that day to day we begin to walk out and work out what it looks like to be blameless in terms of being a loving and caring person, living an outward-facing life toward God and others. Right? Christ, was, Christ did was right. He did what was right. He was righteous. You are declared righteous. The Spirit works out your righteousness. Christ spoke truth in his heart. In other words, the meditation of his mind, the desires of his heart were pure. Right? And in Christ you're declared pure. And now the Spirit is working that out. We look at verse 4. Verse 4 says that the person who's welcomed by God swears to their own hurt and does not change. That's integrity. So now we look at Jesus, the one who fulfilled the psalm. What did that look like? How did Jesus swear to his own hurt and not change? He lived with a commitment to walk in God's ways. And it, and it he lived it with a conviction that his father was good. So this idea of swearing to our own hurt and not changing gives us insight into Christ's nature and our new nature. What we discover is that Jesus was committed to walk in God's ways even at great personal cost because he had the conviction that God was good and in the end God was working everything out for his good. So now we now have a commitment to walk out in God's ways even at great personal cost from freedom. Because the resurrection reminds us God is good. The resurrection reminds us that in the end, God is working everything out. The resurrection reminds us that this life isn't all that there is. See, it's easy to not have integrity if this life is all there is because then we've got to fight and claw to win in every situation. Even if it means compromising our, our, uh, our moral integrity, we'll do it because we've got to live for the now. Because after all, life is short, you know. And so we got to enjoy it. But the, but the eternal view, the resurrection view, changes everything. If this life isn't all that there is, and now I make a decision of it for integrity, but now this, 
you know, this relationship or the situation at work or whatever it may be starts going south, where there's a temptation now for me to bend on my integrity, I'm free. I'm free to stay committed to the integrous thing, even if it's to my own hurt, because this life isn't all that there is. You know, when we get to the end, the very end, the very last verse as we close this morning, the psalm says, the psalm asks, you know, who can dwell on the holy hill? Right? Who can dwell on the holy hill? That's how it, how, it, how it starts out. The holy hill was where the tabernacle was. The holy hill was where the priests were. The holy hill was where the sacrifices were made. <laughs> and David says, who can dwell on the holy hill? I'm so glad he used that wording because Jesus Christ is the greater tabernacle. Jesus Christ is the great high priest. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. Who can, do, who can dwell? Who can do this? The answer is Jesus has done it. And he has done it for us. And so now, from this great freedom, because Christ is one, the one who is able to take away our sin on that holy hill, we now live in freedom and we're guided by the psalm. And then the last thing David says, as he closes the psalm, as he says, those who do these things will never be moved. Moved from where? Moved from the place of welcome by God. Never be moved from the presence of God. Never be moved from the welcome of God. And so church, I have good news. Like a full cup in the hand of an Ethiopian that says you're welcome to stay a while. God's grace for you in Jesus Christ has handed you a full cup that Psalm 23 verse 5 says is full and running over. And the grace of God says, you're welcome to stay with me forever. By grace and through faith in Christ alone, you have the welcome of God, church. And you will never be moved. Amen.